Hello! Here, after a little administrative delay, is the first session of my Fairy and Fantasy class. This first class contained a lot of organizational detail that I won't bother you with, so this recording only ended up being about half an hour long. The class is in a 50-minute time slot, so most of the recordings will be up at around the 45 or 50-minute mark. I've already recorded four sessions of the class, so I'll be working through the backlog here in the next week or so. Oh, and an apology for the comparatively low sound quality of this recording. I did get, as I mentioned in a previous episode, a new recorder for class, and I've now worked out a system whereby I can capture my voice well and the students' voices much better than last year at the same time. On the day of this first class session, however, I hadn't quite been able to get all my hardware together, so the recording is not as clear as it will be starting in the second class. Anyway, on to the introduction. Bit of an introduction into the thematic focus of the class. The modern world, and especially modern literary studies, would like you to believe that fantastic stories taking place in made-up worlds in which magic can operate and in which strange and marvelous creatures walk are not, in fact, serious works of literature. Ever since that period of history which has been named with overbearing self-importance and very questionable accuracy, the Enlightenment, intellectuals have been asserting with aloofness and disdain that such stories are only fit for children. I'm not sure, by the way, whether this assumption, uh, whether the assumptions underlying this claim show more ignorance about fairy stories or about children, but that's another conversation. Uh, one term in common usage in creative writing workshops, for instance, uh, illustrates this situation fairly aptly, I think. Um, if you write fantasy stories for a creative writing workshop, I am told, uh, you are likely to be told that you are writing a kind of genre fiction. Uh, and you might be encouraged to go outside the limiting confines of this particular genre. Notice, though, the negative implied in that label. If fantasy literature is genre fiction, then realistic fiction, it seems, is genre-free. You see? That's just literature. I guess without genre, in some sense, which I can't understand, as I always thought that genre was a way of classifying all things into different categories, not relegating some things that we somehow don't like into particular ideological ghettos uh, but anyway, whatever. Um, that subset of fiction writing, that is realistic fiction, is normal. At least for people who are interested in writing serious literature, intended to be taken seriously by serious people. The, the, the roots and nature of this modern prejudice would take a, lot, a long time to discuss and analyze, uh, and as... This is neither a sociology course, a history course, or a psychology course. I'm not going to try to, uh, to do that. I would only be an amateur in all of those fields anyway. Um, but I would just like to note a few things in passing about it. The modern world in this perspective on literature diverges markedly from almost the entire remnant of humanity over, this, over the scope of the entire rest of recorded history. Um, so the perspective that fiction which is realistic, that is based upon, you know, premised upon or set within places which are just like the real world around us and operate exactly like the real world around us. Um, things which could happen on any average day on any average street. Um, that 
That perspective can't be said to be normal, except in the most local and temporary kind of way. Um, it is profoundly abnormal if you look at anything beyond the modern world, which of course modern people usually don't do. Um, the second thing that I, I would note about this is that the fervor with which fantasy literature is so often condemned strikes me as really odd, uh, and in some ways really suggest suggestive. I mean, I, I'm not normally a big fan of like psychoanalyzing people's subconsciousness and things, but golly. Um, <laughs> because of course, people don't just dislike, modern people, especially serious modern literary people, don't just dislike fantasy literature. They hate it. In fact, they seem almost to resent it. And the people who would seek to, uh, to place it on a, on, a, on a level playing field uh, with realistic literature. Um, and one of the consequences of this is that, I mean, I've found, as a literary critic, that I find that people, I'm really smart people say some of the dumbest things about fantasy literature. I mean, just like wildly uncharacteristic moments of foolishness and stupidity. Um, just to give like a one small kind of example, I, I can't think of any other sort of work or genre of literature that an English professor would at the same time profess to disapprove of and disdain, while at the same time admitting that he's never read it. <laughs> I, for instance, I mean, I, there are two works of literature that I've spent a good deal of my time studying. One uh, is William Langland's Pierce Plowman, um, a wonderful 14th century Middle English allegory, and the other is J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Now, many of my colleagues have read neither of these books. Um, but nobody talks about Langland in the way that some of the people who haven't read Tolkien will talk about Tolkien and maintain with great uh, forcefulness um, how inappropriate it is to consider Tolkien as, you know, contributing significantly to the canon of 20th century literature. Um, while, while, again, absolutely openly confessing a complete unfamiliarity with that work. And it just puzzles me. Uh, it puzzles me, and it's, again, it's one of those things that sort of leads me to wonder, what is the deeper root here? What is it about fantasy literature um, that seems to turn smart people silly? <laughs> uh, but as I say, I, I won't share my own amateur uh, psychiatric and sociological speculations with you. Um, now, there are, of course, many people who don't accept this particular modern prejudice. Um, two of the greatest literary thinkers uh, on this in the 20th century, of course, uh, have been C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. In his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien notes that fantastic literature um, one of the, 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 the fundamental ways in which it differs, that is, the perspective of fantasy literature differs from the perspective of realistic literature, is that it is not primarily concerned about what is possible. It is primarily concerned about what is desirable. Okay? Um, that is, the question that you ask is not, could this really happen? That is, could this really happen? And if not, then it is a violation 
but rather to say, what does this evoke? What does this idea evoke? And of course, he argues in that essay that, that fairy stories, that fantastic literature, expresses and in part fulfills really primordial human desires. Okay, I said I wasn't going to share with you my amateur theories. I can't help it. Um, this actually, I suspect, to be part of the problem. Um, that there is something in fantasy literature that does, well, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It points to things, and it brings up things that people don't like to think about, at least post-enlightenment people don't like to think about. And, as I say, that's uncomfortable. Um, but, amateur theory, forget I said it. Um, one small clarification I want to make, by the way, um, that is a nomenclature clarification. You will notice that the title of the course, Fairy and Fantasy, I have spelled the word fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E. -E. Um, this is not uh, merely a kind of an archaic affectation, um, but a very, an important and specific distinction. That spelling of the word is traditionally associated not with fairies, that is, the creatures, uh, the magical creatures who occasionally appear, though, as we'll find, not nearly so often as we might expect them in fairy stories, um, but rather the country that they belong to, the magical land of fairy, capital F. And that magical land of fairy, this concept of the magical realm of fairy, is the idea which is really central to fantasy, to fantastic literature in general. Um, there is much fantastic literature, much that falls within the scope of what we're going to be looking at in this class, which is not at all interested in fairies, per se. Um, now, as we'll see, there are, of course, a lot of misconceptions about fairies when I say that are not interested in fairies. I don't know what image the word fairies raises in your mind. I have a terrible fear uh, that being, as we are, the children of our current culture, uh, at least fleetingly and perhaps enduringly, the image that appears in your mind when I say that word is Tinkerbell, or something that looks quite like Tinkerbell, anyway. Um, this is, well, I don't want to, I don't want to completely diss Tinkerbell, uh, because of course there is quite a long-standing tradition of stories about fairies who are kind of like Tinkerbell, kind of like Tinkerbell. They don't all have Tinkerbell's peculiar and rather disturbing issues. Uh, <laughs> seriously, like, is anyone else kind of creeped out by Peter Pan? The film, I mean, you know, like, the, the Disney film with the whole, like, really explicitly erotic competition with Wendy and especially juxtaposed as it is in an environment which is explicitly like we're going back, like we're staying in childhood and we're we're avoiding thinking about adult things, well except for Tinkerbell who's obviously <laughs> all the way through while both Peter and Wendy are fortunately I would say blissfully unaware of, uh, of what seems to be going on in the Sad little mind of Tinkerbell uh, and her little scantily dressed self, but no, I, I, I don't, I don't feel that I get 
Tinkerbell specifically. But anyway, uh, Tinkerbell, of course, is part of the tradition, which is a more modern. Now, here I don't mean modern necessarily post-Enlightenment. This began in the Renaissance, um, and, and, and Shakespeare must bear some uh, responsibility for it. Um, we can see, for instance, in Midsummer Night's Dream, one of the sort of transitional moments. Um, transitional from the medieval concept of fairies, where we will begin this semester, to the later concept of fairies, or I guess we could even say the intermediate concept of fairies, um, which are in which fairies are Tinkerbell-like, small and mischievous, uh, and often you know hiding inside of flowers and sprinkling dust on people and stuff like that, <laughs> pouring things into people's ears, and then. Uh, cackling with delight at the mischief that they've caused. Um, I said, this is where you see Midsummer Night's Dream is transitional. You have Puck talks like that, and he talks about himself as, you know, hiding behind blades of grass and things like that. Um, and yet, what we actually see on stage is something which actually looks much more like the medieval concept of fairies, in which fairies were not only human in stature, that is, at least as large as human beings were, or, though in fact usually quite a bit more, uh, certainly as we'll see um, when the Green Knight comes into Arthur's court and Sir Gowan the Green Knight, uh, there's nothing diminutive at all about the Green Knight. Um, and certainly uh, there's nothing small scale really about any of them. Um, fairies were larger than life creatures. They were, they were under, that when they intervene in human affairs as we see them occasionally doing in medieval romances, some of which we're gonna read, um, we see that they are coming down to humans from above in some sense. Um, and again, there are moments in Midsummer Night's Dream where we can see Oberon and Titania looking like that and acting like that. There is this sense in which they are these superhuman creatures who are looking down on the mortals below them and messing with them for purposes best known to themselves and completely inscrutable and indeed generally unknown even uh, to any of the humans involved with the one uh, and really intriguing exception of Bottom, of course. But um, anyway, it says that Shakespeare is kind of transitional. Post-Shakespeare, things go more into the small little uh, diminutive fairies. Um, in, I call it the intermediate period, because later on in the 20th century, um, especially through Tolkien, we get this new sort of return to the to the to a more medieval view of fairies. Tolkien's elves uh, in the Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the films, you know, Goadriel, it's a fairy. Um, elves were fairies. He used those two words interchangeably um, in in his in his mind and in, in his early versions of the text. Um, the, the two words were always synonyms, elf and fairy. Um, Though sometimes they can be used in different contexts. But anyway, um, so one of the things that Tolkien does very self-consciously uh, in his books is to be writing fairy stories uh, in the old traditions, F-A-E-R-I-E fairy stories. Um, not just stories in which elves occur, but stories which are interested in fairy, capital F. Um, he also located the kingdom of fairy within his stories. Um, at one point in The Hobbit, which was, of course, written a long time before the, the Lord of the Rings was, um, and also was intended as a piece of juvenile literature, and so therefore um, 
taking part of this new child-focused tradition of fairy stories, which grows up post-Enlightenment. Um, he, he refers to the kingdom of Valinor, the kingdom beyond the sea, where the elves dwell with the gods as fairy, capital F. Um, so the kingdom of fairy occurs in his works, but more importantly, he is very interested in all of his stories with the ways in which human beings encounter fairy, capital F, uh, during, during their stories. Um, we can see several moments in Tolkien stories where we get this flavor very clearly. In The Hobbit, when Bilbo and the dwarves go into Mirkwood and they hear these elf sounds in the distance, this is very much a transition into a, into a fairy realm where, of course, the fairies, the elves actually live. Um, and also in The Lord of the Rings, certainly when, uh, when Frodo and Aragorn and everybody go into Lothlorien, um, they're... Uh, a very big deal is made of the boundary there and what happens when mortals go across that boundary and how different that world is in many ways. Um, now, you'll see just sort of from some of these overviews that I've been giving here, what I want to be doing this semester, the goal of this class, is to kind of go back or at least to kind of glance back at these earlier traditions and how these traditions persist despite intellectual persecution uh, and in fact have grown up in different ways and in different directions in the modern era. Of course, the modern fantasy genre being in a sense the child of these older fairy story traditions. I say in a sense because I want to be careful. One word that I've been trying carefully not to use in talking about this is evolution because I think that that gives a misleading sense of things. I think it's not quite fair uh, to say that the modern fantasy genre evolved out of the old fairy story genre because I don't think that that metaphor, the evolution metaphor, is a very good metaphor for the actual process that we see. Rather, how I want to invite us to think about it, especially since in this class, of course, you know, due to our time constraints, we're doing a pretty... Uh, pretty rapid little survey of, uh, of a bunch of things as we're running through, you know, about six or seven centuries of literature. Um, uh, what we can see is that these are different manifestations of this same kind of impulse at different times. And they're aware, often, of previous traditions. But I don't think we can quite say that sort of one grows out of the other, which has grown out of the other, um, in in sort of a genuinely evolutionary mode. Um, so I said, well, what we're going to be doing is a kind of a survey of fantastic literature in English, uh, specifically. This is why when we do the 19th century stories, we're going to be doing some stories which were originally uh, published by the Brothers Grimm, but we're going to be reading the Andrew Lang versions, because Andrew Lang, uh, in his... <clears throat> collections of fairy stories which he gathered uh, assiduously from everywhere he could find them um, was <clears throat> definitely the primary vehicle for the transmission of these fairy stories to an English audience um, and since we're, gonna, we're looking at specifically uh, English stories on either side of it that is uh, English romances at the beginning medieval English romances at the beginning uh, and English fantasy literature at the end um, I wanted to sort of use that specifically English vehicle, which was Andrew lying in the middle of it. Um, now, one thing I wanted to go back and say about 
uh, fantasy literature, again, thinking of the modern detractors of it, there's one very valid point that modern detractors of fantasy literature can make. And that is that there really is a very great deal of quite badly written fantasy literature out there. Um, so anyone who is looking for, uh, who's actually willing to read fantasy literature uh, and yet distrusts it and doesn't think that it belongs can certainly find many examples of terrible fantasy literature which certainly does not merit very serious consideration as profound literary works. Um, that's certainly true. There are three things that I would say to this, though. One is that, of course, exactly the same thing can be said about realistic literature. Uh, there is, in fact, even more horrible and dreadful realistic <laughs> literature out there uh, because it dominates the market. And so, therefore, even if the percentages are the same, it's going to be it's, it's enormously more. Um, so that's one, one thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is that, of course, some of this is also culturally determined. As I said, since uh, a young writer in a creative writing workshop is likely to be told that if they want to be taken seriously as a writer, they shouldn't write fantasy. And so, therefore, there have been many writers who have not. That is, there are the, the culture of our, our literary culture has been very proactively steering people who are good writers and want to be taken seriously away from it. And so, therefore, I think that there are many people who might have written excellent fantasy, but who didn't and who haven't, um, because that is not the culture in which they live. Um, but the third and I think most important reason why we see so much dreadful fantasy out there is that it is very much harder to write good fantasy than it is to write good realistic fiction. Very much harder. Now that might seem like a kind of bizarre reverse snobbery, um, but I, I think that this is simply logically provable. Um, I'm not, of course, saying that writing real good realistic fiction is easy and anyone can do it. Goodness knows that is not true. However, every single challenge that a realistic fiction writer faces in writing a good story is faced also by the fantasy writer. However, the fantasy writer also has one extra and quite large challenge that the realistic writer does not. And that is what Tolkien calls subcreation. What fantasy literature does, the primary difference, the essential difference, between fantasy literature and realistic literature is that fantasy literature creates what Tolkien called a secondary world. That is, he differentiated the secondary world from the primary world. The primary world is the real world around us, the one that we actually operate in and that we actually believe in. Okay? And he says that an author creates a secondary world. He hated the expression, uh, willing suspension of disbelief. You know, this is a standard way to describe what an author, or sort of, what a reader has to do when encountering a book, especially a book which is unrealistic, right? Which is fantastic. They have to suspend disbelief. I know that this is untrue, but while I'm reading it, I'm going to pretend that I don't know it's untrue. I'm going to pretend like I believe in it briefly, right? I'm just going to suspend it. I'm not going to expel it. I'm just going to suspend it, disbelief. Right? I'm going to hold it at bay for a second, long enough temporarily to enjoy it, and then I'll let it come back, right? And Tolkien says that this is, first of all, um, that's a pretty low goal uh, to set out for, that if this is the experience you want your readers to have. But he also argues this is not at all like the experience 
that a reader has when reading a fantastic story, which is good. Rather, the experience that you, the way that he described this experience was not, if you are conscious of suspending disbelief, if the whole time you're thinking, I know this is crap, but I'm pretending it isn't, I know this is crap, <laughs> if you're doing that in your head while you're reading, Tolkien says, then that book is a failure. <laughs> Rather, and I think that, that you know, many of us can, can relate to the experience that Tolkien describes. When you're reading a good book, you enter into that world. Imaginatively. Temporarily, you lose yourself in it. And within your imagination, as you engage with the book, you temporarily enter in and invest it with a kind of belief. He calls it secondary belief. It's not primary belief. It's not like you're actually confused when you think it's real. At least, usually. At least, you shouldn't. Because it isn't. I just want to make that clear. Um, Secondary belief. Um, this, and, and this is his way of describing that literary experience. So a fantasy writer, therefore, has to create this secondary world, has to create a world which you can invest secondary belief in, which you're not the whole time sitting there scrutinizing and scrutinizing your own experience of, but you can just let it go and enter into it. That's really hard. That process Tolkien called subcreation. It's very, very difficult to do. You don't start with just a set of givens of the world around us. I'm going to describe exactly what I see. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to make the whole framework of my world, the literary world that you have to enter into in my story, is by default the world around us. Now, again, this is not to minimize what a good realistic novel does. It does many good things. Brings you into, uh, can you, you can tell really great stories. You can bring people into encounters with, with really fascinating characters. And, and I'm not saying that to read a realistic novel is just to experience the world as you always do all the time. But it still fundamentally does not operate within this different. There's not that kind of world creation. There's not that kind of sub-creation going on. And that's hard to do. That sub-creation is really challenging. And what Tolkien argues is that this sub-creation, this creation of the secondary world, it's not just okay. It's not just permissible for people to do this. But he says this is sort of the essence of storytelling. This is what, this is the fulfillment of the storytelling drive. This is what, that thing that makes people want to tell stories, this is the perfect fulfillment of that thing. So you talk about it, it, one of the things that you see emerging in Tolkien's discussion of this. Not only does he argue that fairy stories themselves engage these primordial desires in, uh, in their readers. Things, uh, for instance, that he'll describe as, um, for instance, let's see, what are the words that he uses? Communing with nature, right? The ability to actually communicate uh, with animals and to, to, to sort of perceive the experience of other natural things that are not human. This is one of those things that he points to as a primordial desire, which fairy stories often engage and partially satisfy. It's, but it's not just about eliciting and satisfying these desires in its readers. It is also about, in an even deeper way, satisfying the desire of the writer. This, which he considered an even more fundamental human desire, to be a sub-creator. This is how, this is how we're wired. Tolkien argued, the goodness knows he wouldn't have used that metaphor. Uh, this, is, this, is how, this is how we are set up. 
um, that we are, by our nature, makers. We are storytellers. We are human beings are intrinsically storytelling, art-making creatures. We can't help it. Um, and that this fantastic sub-creation is sort of the most fulfillment <coughs> of that desire that we all have. But, as I said, it's really hard to do. Um, now, one last caution that I'll give, and here we kind of return to, uh, to, to more prosaic things. Your first reading assignment, due for Wednesday, uh, is the first uh, 200-ish lines of Sir Orfeo. Um, you will notice that it is in Middle English, as in fact will be the first five books that we read uh, this semester. Um, don't panic. Don't <laughs> panic. And do not, let me say that again, do not go and find a modern translation of this. You can do this. You can do this. And you will find it well worth it. Um, whenever you have the opportunity, you should always read the original. And you all can. Um, uh, you are all perfectly capable intelligent modern English speakers of going back and reading Middle English. Um, I have done I have done and am doing two things to help in the process of transitioning into reading the Middle English verse. One uh, is I my tenses are difficult here. Have provided, am providing, um, am making available love the richness of English verb tenses and forms. Uh, soon we'll have... Never mind. Um, <laughs> an unabridged audio recording of the poem in Middle English. Um, it's already up on the webpage. Um, if you go down to the audio, the, the section underneath the reading schedule, you can find a link um, to an audio file of me reading Sir Orfeo in Middle English so you can hear the sound of it. Um, uh, I'm also going to be uploading that to my podcast stream so you can download it through iTunes on your iPad. That way I'll, we'll talk about that at the tutorial session. Um, the other thing, in addition to having an audio version of the text so that you can hear it and begin to sort of see the rhythm of it, which once you get, you'll find reading the poem much easier. Um, also, I'm, I am uploading a little audio introduction to reading Middle English, pointing out some things that will help, I think, um, with getting you over some of the initial shock of the, the sort of foreignness of Middle English. Um, there is both a Word document of this and also an audio version of that as well. Um, but I'll be giving more detailed instructions about this. So both of those will be available for you to help you get into Sir Orfeo. We're going to go slowly. We're only reading 200 little short lines. Uh, the length of the assignments will increase as we move into the Middle English and you guys get more fluent and comfortable with it. But we'll start gently with Sir Orpia. And thus, the rambling and slightly disjointed introductory class came to an end. As you could probably tell, I had a really hard time with that first class. There were about a hundred things that I wanted to talk about, not to mention about a thousand others that I'm too new to this body of literature to be able to treat competently, and then many more things that came up while I was talking. All in all, it rather felt like a jumble. But in any case, I am, as usual, just as happy to set the lecturing aside and get into discussion of the texts themselves, which we will begin doing in class number two. 
As I mentioned at the end of class, the first few books are in Middle English. I hope you have found in my podcast feed, or on my website, the audio files that I have already uploaded in the interest of helping you to get into the Middle English verse, namely the intro to Middle English, the recording of Sir Orfeo, and recently the recording of Sir Launfal. Give Sir Orfeo a listen, and you'll be ready for class number two, which should be ready very soon. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.